Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Welcome. Hey, as we begin this morning, we're going to sing a song that's familiar that just walks through a couple important things for us. In, in Colossians chapter 1, talking about Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, that, before, that in Him and through Him all things were made that were made. And we're actually going to sing that story as we start our time this morning with a familiar song. God of creation, God of your promise, God of salvation, and then our response. And so can we stand together? And join with many other brothers and sisters in Christ in Fayetteville that are turning their eyes to our Father this morning. So let's stand together and sing this. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time. No point of reference You spoke to the dark And fleshed out the wonder of life Would you sing this with me? And as you speak Oh, a hundred billion galaxies are born In the vapor of your breath The planet If the stars are made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made. Every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. God that when he says something he does it God of your promise and God of your promise you don't speak in vain the syllable empty your voice for once you have spoken all nature and science
gave up your life so that every one of our failures would disappear and be washed over by the blood of Jesus. Father, that's why we gather, because of what he's done. Lord, if there's other motives in this room, would you kill that in us? If our motive here is to save face or to make a connection for work or just to be entertained or because to check it off a to-do list, Lord, would you forgive us for that? Lord, I know I'm guilty of that. Thank you for Jesus. He's why we gather. He's who we lift up. So in my pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. Well, good morning, church family. Uh, Clark here with you. I've got Tad, our FSM team leader, with us this morning. morning. And uh, yes, thank you all so much uh, for walking us into worship like that. It made me think of John chapter 1, and we got to sing part of that and celebrate that this morning. As we consider our John series, it's always good to sing scripture. And so, uh, a great way to start, um, team. Um, hey, wanted to uh, just uh, bring to your attention some really cool stuff that's happening. You know, our, our mission and vision here at Fellowship Fayetteville is to produce and release spiritual leaders who know and express the authentic Christ to Northwest Arkansas and the world. Uh, six years ago, this Mother's Day, we were able to launch this Fayetteville congregation down here. And yeah. Really excited. Today, April 3rd, it's happening in Bentonville. And so right now, so much of that is made possible by your generosity. And so um, if you think about Bentonville this week, in a good way, I know we're Fayetteville Bulldogs, right? Um, pray for them this week. God's doing some really cool things already in their congregation, and uh, we want to continue to pray for them, that this first month right out of the gate would go really well for them. We also wanted to bring you up to date on some produced and released spiritual leaders that we got to launch just less than a month ago. And so Kyle and Elise McCarthy, they had a few words for us and we wanted to watch that. So Hey fellowship. We made it to Japan. We're really thankful for you all and how much you've already supported us over the past year as we've been preparing to come to Japan and even more so over the past several years as we've been a part of the church family there. Since getting here, we've been able to be a part of our first Japanese worship services with Mustard Seed Christian Church Tokyo. It's been such an incredible opportunity and we've loved meeting all the people at the church and just so many new people in Japan. Tomorrow we'll start language school and we're really excited to start that process and know that we'll be doing that for the first year and a half while here. We can't wait to continue to partner with you for the next several years and share more stories as we work with Mustard Seed Network to see Japanese people following Jesus and see churches planted among the unreached in Japan. Arigato gozaimasu. Matane.
still. Shouldn't have made eye contact with Garland. We know he got weepy seeing them off a few weeks ago. And Kyle was one of my cell group leaders uh, whenever I was in high school growing up at this church. So it's, uh, it's really special to get to see that they made it there safe and we continue praying for them. Um, hey, a couple of other announcements just for our church family, uh, some, some opportunities and then things coming up. If you've ever been in a situation where you uh, have felt like you had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone or just share what you believe and tell them about Jesus, or maybe you felt compelled that you should uh, with a coworker or friend or family member, but then you're worried like, hey, this is going to be awkward or I'm going to sound weird or I don't even know where to start, um, I just tell you. I've been there, and, and that's a normal feeling that probably many of us have faced. But we wanna provide an opportunity that, that would equip our church to be better in those kind of conversations. Um, and so we're gonna be having a workshop uh, throughout May, May 1st through May 22nd. I think it's four Sundays. Uh, where we're gonna have a workshop meeting in the classroom, uh, just going over how do we share the good news about Jesus with people. And so, uh, again, if, if you uh, know that you need to grow in that space, or even just wonder why that's important for us as believers, I would really encourage you to take this, uh, take this workshop with us, uh, and, and we're going to go through some practical ways that we can have conversations with others about Jesus uh, in ways that are normal uh, and, and just conversational. So check that out. Uh, also, in two weeks, Easter is here, and, and we're really excited to get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as a church family. And so I wanted to share just a couple times uh, of some services. April 15th, we're gonna open up the student center. That's Good Friday. Good Friday is the day that we remember the day that Jesus went to the cross where he paid for our sins uh, and that he suffered on our behalf in order to make a way for life for us. And we're gonna open up that space for just prayer and communion and just worship and contemplation and thinking about that. So you can come between 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. The student center will be open um, and, and that space will be set up to just have some uh, time alone with Jesus or bring a friend or family to that. And then on Easter Sunday, we're gonna celebrate that he did not stay in the grave, that he is risen. And we'll, uh, we'll meet in, in, in here. Uh, and a couple other service options will be at 7.30. We're gonna have a sunrise service across the street at the 112 drive-in. And so that'll be a really awesome just way to start the day. If you're an early riser, join us for that. We'll be across the street at 7.30. And then the other service times will be at 9 o'clock and 10.30 as usual. We'll have a service in here and also a family service out in the back parking lot uh, where we'll just kind of have a more family-oriented service there. But you can come to any of those. And if it rains, which it could because it's just that time of year, uh, everything will be moved in here, uh, both the 7.30 service and the 9 and 10.30 as well. So we can't wait to celebrate with y'all. Did you know, Ted, it's one of the few times of the year where we as families get to all celebrate together in this room with our children. And so it can be a little, feel a little chaotic sometimes, but it's we awesome. celebrate the family of faith being together in one, in one room. And so we're excited about that Sunday. So, hey, you've got a psalm you're going to read us, yes. Ted. Yeah. Uh, before we dive back into a time of worship and, and then to, just, just to prepare our hearts to, to engage with the passage today, we're going to read Psalm 23, which talks about how God is like a shepherd to us. So read along with me. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, this is my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare sound great. I don't think we planned it to go like that, but that was awesome. I loved hearing y'all's voices. Hey, as we continue in worship this morning, we're gonna sing a song over you that's familiar, and we're actually gonna take our offering during this song. And just a reminder, we, we don't give out of guilt. Um, we give to remind ourselves that what we've been given, we're called to steward well, and we give out of response to the God that we sang about earlier. We give out of that heart. And so as we sing this song, let's pay attention to these words this morning. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're the well that never runs dry. I'm the branch and you are the vine. Draw me close and teach me to abide. 
Stand with us. We continue to sing where the Spirit leads. With the Spirit leads, as I'm following, I depend on you. I depend on you for the Faithful promises. 
Stay standing for the reading of the word, John chapter 10, 1 through 10. The words of Jesus. 
Truly, truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, which you sent to live and dwell in us, would you unlock the words of your son Jesus for us this morning? These famous words, these familiar words to probably many of us, would you enable them to, to land on us and to change how we view you and how we view this, li this life around us? That we might choose you, the gate, the door for the sheep, go in and out to find pasture and life to the full. And we ask this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we today? Good. It's decent enough. I'll take that. Um, I'm Garland. Glad to be uh, with y'all. As always, you sound great this morning. Um, just, I'd like to start with an observation. Um, most people that I know, including most of my friends and most people that I've talked to in this room, as humans, we share this, this vision or this, this picture. We're chasing after a, a vision for what we think the good life is to be. Like what it means to flourish as human beings. I'm going to let a, a philosopher say it for me because he says it better than me. This is James K.A. Smith. Uh, he's a philosopher. He got his uh, degree at Villanova. And just hear what he says. I think he's right on the money. He says this about us. He says, we are the sorts of animals whose love is aimed at different ends or goals. We all have an object of our love, and those differ between each and, all, each and every one of us. He says, love always has a target something that it intends or aims at. Now lean in here and see. It says, what we love is a specific vision of the good life, an implicit and implied picture of what we think human flourishing looks like. Our ultimate love is oriented by and to a picture of what we think it looks like for us to live well. And that picture then governs, shapes, and motivates our decisions and actions. Each of us are yearning towards a vision of what we, it looks, what we think it looks like to, to maximize happiness in this life, a picture of the good life. And I think, I think, he's, I think he's accurate because marketers have known this for years. Think about the way that we are advertised to, like our, our, one of our big companies here. Their slogan used to be, save money, live better. They're not just selling Walmart what they sell. They're selling a vision of a better way to live, a better life. Taco Bell has it in their slogan, live must. Now, every time I go by Taco Bell, I always am wondering, who's still going there? Like, who's still eating there? But I got a confession to make. Every time I eat at Taco Bell, I leave and I think, that was delicious. <laughs> it's so good. Like, it's so good. It's still so good. It never changes. But it's still so good. Remember the Pepsi commercials from back in the 80s and 90s? They're not just selling Pepsi. They're selling a vision of what it looks like to be a part of the new generation, not that stuffy old generation that drank Coke, but the new generation of youth and vibrancy that drinks Pepsi. Even, even the army knows this. It's not just enlist, but it's a vision of a life of honor and sacrifice. Be all that you can be. And it's not just our marketers that know this. Politicians, they don't just come out and give us, here's a, here's a set of legislation for you to ponder and vote on. No. Both sides of the aisle, they, they pitch a vision of the way that we can flourish most as a people, as a, as a culture, as a country. 
And if we would just vote for us and our policies, we'll have maximum human flourishing. The other side says, no, vote for us and our policies. That will bring maximum human flourishing. It's not just marketers and it's not just politicians. We see it in our social movements, both on the, on the conservative side and on the progressive side. They're, they're pitching a way to flourishing. Just hear the language of the social movements in our, in our culture. Here's one. I just picked uh, just one that I, I thought really captured the language. This person says, I've been embraced by a new kind of community. That's what happens when you're finally honest about who you are. You find others like you. You hear the language of that. This way to the, the good life. What we're going to see is Jesus, the last verse as we read it, he, he makes this dramatic statement. He says, I have come that my people that they might have life, but not just life, life to the full. Abundantly overflowing the good life. That's why I've come. And I'm just simply calling this this morning, the good life. Like, what does it look like? What is this vision of the life that Jesus is painting for us? First, we wanna see the picture of the good life. Second, he's gonna give us a warning about the enemies of the good life. And lastly, we're gonna have to see our desperate need for what Jesus is offering. So Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. What's the picture of this vision he's painting for us? Then the enemies of it, and lastly, the need for it. If you have your Bibles or phone, whatever you got, go with me to John chapter 10. Uh, let's take a look. While you're turning there or scrolling there, let me give a plug. Um, pull your phone out. And go ahead and subscribe to Sermon Notes, okay? Sermon Notes is a, is a tool, it's a resource that we here at Fellowship Fayetteville, a lot of the time when we're working on passages and working on teachings, there's a lot of stuff that we have to cut because we just don't have time. They only give us 30 minutes, and I always go over, um, but they give us 30 minutes and we have to cut stuff often. And if you're a serious student of the Bible, if you're making disciples out in our city, if you're a small group leader, if you just want to know more about what's in the passage, subscribe to Sermon Notes. That's what it's for. And here, can I just ask, we, we've kind of made this up in the last six months, our team. If it's not if it's not good, if it's not what you're wanting, come tell me. Come tell me. Email me. If it's, if it's exactly what works, that's great. Then let us know that as well. We want it to be a resource that helps you in your personal study of the scriptures and in our discipleship here as a community and as a church. So, so download it. Uh, let us know if it's, if, it's, if it's good, if it's working, and we can adjust it if we need to. We're kind of making it, as, uh, making it up as we go. Okay, John 10, verse 10. Here's where we're starting. Jesus' statement. It says, I have come that they might have life... Now, notice his adjective. Here's how the NIV is translating it, that they might have life to the full. Now, I normally think that taking an, a Greek, a first century Greek lexicon, which is a dictionary entry for a word, and just reciting it is super boring. But this one was so good that I'm gonna give it to you. This is the low nida lexicon, and this is, their, this is their understanding of what this Greek word, to the full, it's an adjective, means. It's the Greek word parison. And here's the low nida's understanding of how this word works. Think about it. They say parison, life parison is this. It's pertaining to a quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. Is that not awesome? They said that which is more than, more than enough, beyond the norm, abundant or superfluous, overflowing, unnecessary in its abundance. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life parison, overflowing, abundant. That's the life I've come to offer. Isn't that cool? Now, we have to understand what's the, what's the picture he's painting for us? What's the context of this famous statement that Jesus makes in John 10, 10? Well, let's work our way up to it and start back in verse three. Jesus has been giving an illustration. Now, we all, the, the, the communicators that we like to listen to, the people who like to podcast, oftentimes they're really good at taking a, maybe a complex idea and distilling it down into a, an illustration or an anecdote or a story or something like that. And Jesus is a really effective communicator, and he does this all the time. And here, he gives us a picture of a sheep pen and sheep. I'll read it. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls the sheep by name. He leads them out. When he's brought them out, he goes ahead. They follow him. Now, here's the problem. Almost none of us are shepherds. 
If you are a shepherd, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I got some questions for you. But most of us are like, I don't get the illustration, Jesus. Give me something about sports or like business or something. Then maybe we can relate to it. But Jesus is giving an illustration. He's giving an analogy that people in his day will, are very, very, very familiar with. We're not. So we gotta do a little work here. We gotta do a little research. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like. This is a very regular idea in the ancient Jewish world. Here's a picture of a modern one, and this is, gives you an idea of what a sheep pen would look like. It's a small enclosure, usually built up with rocks. Oftentimes they put like brambles or thorns kind of on top to keep the sheep in. It doesn't have to be all that large, especially in a rural setting. And when the weather gets bad or nighttime or there's predators in the area, the shepherd can lead the sheep into the sheep pen. And sometimes Sometimes multiple shepherds will bring their sheep in, and the shepherd, when he wants to call his sheep out, will stand at the gate and call. And what's amazing about sheep is they have learned the voice and the call of their shepherd, and they'll follow their shepherd out. The other ones will stay. This is the image that Jesus is using. I wish it was a basketball image because I could relate to that a little easier because I'm not a shepherd, but this is what Jesus is using for us. And let's, let's draw the implications out of what he wants us to see. First, notice the responsibility of the sheep, down at the bottom of verse four. They know the shepherd's voice. They've learned it. Some of them, they were born into this fold and their whole lives, they've been learning and hearing the voice of this shepherd. They know their shepherd's call. They can distinguish it from all the other calls of any other shepherd out there. They've learned it. And they've learned that this shepherd will lead them to water and pasture. Notice their other responsibility of the sheep. They don't just know the voice, but they follow him. It would do the sheep no good to know their shepherd's voice and then to just stand there and not follow. They would starve. They, they know the voice and then they follow the shepherd. Now look at the responsibilities of the shepherd in the passage. It says the shepherd calls his sheep, but not just... To, he didn't just call them, he calls his own sheep. He calls them by name. In, in researching for this, uh, I, I saw that shepherds can oftentimes, they will learn their entire flock. They'll have names for each of the sheep. And it could be up, upwards of 100 sheep. And they'll have names for them. This is Little White, this is Fluffy One. This, they have little names for all these sheep. He knows them by name and leads them out. Anytime you do, uh, you look at any passage in the Bible about sheep, shepherds, this kind of thing, Psalm 23, like we read earlier, there's a book I want to recommend to you. It's a little short book. It's not very expensive. It's only like 100 pages. Some, I know several of you have read it before. It's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's by Philip Keller, and he was a pastor who actually went and lived the life of a shepherd for 11 years in New Zealand. Lord of the Rings land. Is that not awesome? And he lived the life of a shepherd, and then he reflected on that and wrote a book on Psalm 23. It's really interesting. And so uh, anytime I, I'm looking at sheep and shepherd imagery in the Bible, I just kind of pull that Bible or that book out and look at what he says about just the sheer requirements of the shepherd. He says, the shepherd must be amongst his sheep daily, keeping a close watch on their behavior. As soon as there is the least evidence that they are being disturbed, he must take steps to provide them with relief. I mean, they're, they're directionless animals. He has to be close to them, near to them. There's an intimacy required here. It's a 24-7, dirty, grimy, dangerous job. It's a blue-collar job, and this is the job of the shepherd. And look at the last line. He says, always uppermost in his mind is the aim of keeping his flock quiet, contented, and at peace. Ever before the shepherd he has to know their body language. He has to look for the predators ahead. This is the picture that Jesus is drawing out for us to reflect on. And then his audience doesn't get it. We're told the Pharisees, they, they didn't understand what he was telling them. So he's gonna double down on the image. Look at what he says, verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said again, Truly, truly, or very truly, I tell you, I am the gate. Here's our I am statement for this morning as we work through our I am series here in the book of John. I am the gate. Some of your translations may have door for the sheep. In verse nine, I'll say it again. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, if you're paying attention, I kind of want to accuse Jesus here. 
Like, stick with a metaphor, dude. Like, are you the shepherd or are you the door? Like, you're getting, you're getting me confused here. Now, that shows our lack of awareness here, our lack of understanding. And in researching for this, there was one commentator who actually went and did research among Bedouin Arabic shepherds in the Middle East today. And they were conversing with one of these shepherds, and he asked the shepherd, they had a sheep pen very similar to this one, and asked the shepherd, okay, um, I see the sheep pen, but I see this opening. There's no gate. There's no door. How, how, how do you keep them in there? They can just walk right through it. And this Arabic uh, shepherd, who's never read John 10, by the way, just responded, said, well, I am the door. What does he mean? The shepherds, especially in a rural setting like this, they would actually sit in the opening of the sheep pen at night. Thus, they become the gate. They become the door. He said, yeah, that way any predator that tries to get in, they got to go over me. And any of the sheep that, are try- that might be foolish enough to try to get out there and get lost, they have to go over me. I am the gate. It causes us to have to ask the simple question, really. What's the, what's the function of a gate? Whether it's a human being lying in the opening or the mother of all gates, the black gates of Mordor. Lord of the Rings fans? What a subdued response from my Lord of the Rings fans. You gotta give me more than that. Lord of the Rings fans! Yeah. Nerds, yes, <laughs> myself included. Uh, what, is the, what is the function of a gate, okay? How does it work? Two things, think about it, really simple. The gate provides protection. You get behind the gate when enemies or predators approach, and it protects you from the enemy out there. But gates also open. They provide access so that the sheep may be able to go out and find pasture and water and what they need. Both protection and they open to provide provision, access to everything that the sheep may need. That's exactly what Jesus has in mind. Look at what he says. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me, there's protection. You'll be rescued or saved or delivered. The enemy can't get to you. But also it opens. You can come in and go out and find everything that you need. Think of the image here. This is really profound. What Jesus is saying is, if you come through the gate, and I am the gate, he says, then your, your heart, your soul, who you are, your security, you'll find it in me. No longer running, running scared out there, filled with anxiety and fear, come in through me, and I'll rescue you from any of the things that would bombard and harass you. Come in through me. But also, through me, you will find the access to the thing your soul craves and desperately needs, the water that will quench the hunger in your soul, the water that will will satisfy you. Come and find it. I'll, I'll, I'll lead you to it. That deep thing in us that's desperate for affirmation and security, that deep thing in us that's always gnawing at us. He says, come through me and I'll give you everything that you need. Come through me. This is the the good life that Jesus is offering, the abundant life. Now, let's clarify something. When we hear Jesus talking about abundance, the good life, don't miss it. I think for many of us, we hear language like that we think, sweet, I want abundance. I'll take abundance anytime. But what do we know about Jesus's life that can help us understand what he means here, the picture of it? Jesus was not materially wealthy. In fact, he lived most of his life in poverty. He lived a life of relative obscurity outside of a very small region in a backwater part of the Roman Empire. Um, he, was not, he didn't have an important, impressive job. He was eventually uh, arrested, falsely accused, falsely condemned, beaten, and murdered. So what can we learn from Jesus about what he means by this abundance? He's offering an abundance that is completely untethered to circumstances. That's not dependent on the wealth or people being nice or things going our way. Think about that. A life untethered, a life of abundance and joy that's untethered from circumstance. 
all the political ideologies and the social movements, all the commercials, all the advertisements, they're essentially selling us the good life when circumstances go good. When we've bought into it, we have believed that when the circumstances in my life are good, people are liking me, money's up, good life, abundance. When the circumstances are bad, bad life, God must be against me. And we've directly attached our sense of value and security and worth to how our circumstances go. And it's exhausting and filled with anxiety and worry. We all know it. And Jesus says, I can give you a life of abundance and joy that's not dependent on that. Come to the gate and find joy that is impervious to circumstances going off on you. What an amazing picture that Jesus is offering us. The good life, the abundant life, superfluous abundance, untethered from circumstance. Now, he's gonna give us a warning. He's gonna say there are some enemies to this good life. Now, I think for a lot of us, it's a famous passage, and we, we get the warning wrong. We misunderstand the warning, which got me thinking, what are some of the most easy to misunderstand warning signs that we have in our world. Just a quick Google search gave me a plethora of them. Like, here's a tough one. How do you interpret this? Like, what's supposed to happen? You just get to the stop sign and your car explodes and that's it for you? Like, what do you do here? Or, or this one, I don't know how to interpret this sign. It's, hard. it's easy to misunderstand this. Like, where am I supposed to go? I get the bikers, they got a nice lane there. But I guess I'm just supposed to drive off the cliff. My favorite one was this one. I don't know what to do with it. I, I, I don't know what the cow's doing. I don't know why there's a lightning bolt in the car. I don't get the warning here. And this is probably my favorite one, maybe my second favorite one. It's got to be Europe somewhere. And look at what it says. It just says, good luck. Like, good luck with this. Americans have no chance of navigating. We can barely do simple roundabouts over by the hospital, let alone this thing. So we, we see the warning of Jesus, and I think oftentimes we misunderstand it. So let, let's look at it. It's a famous, famous verse. I've, I'm, here, I'm here to give you the good life, but there's an enemy. It says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And if you grew up in the church, I bet most of you, and myself included, think my whole life I thought, okay, I know what he's saying. I know who the thief is. The thief, Satan. He's the thief. He's the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Satan's bad. He's the bad guy. And he, I'm not arguing that Satan destroys, okay? I'm not arguing that. And he's bad. But that's not who Jesus has in mind as the thief here. That's not who he has in mind at all. So let's look at the context to understand what does Jesus mean so we can rightly understand the warning. To do that, go back up to verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. Notice what it says. Truly, truly, I tell you, who is it? Pharisees. Now, I want you to draw an arrow from the word Pharisees in verse 1, if, you're, if your translation carries it, down to the word thief in verse 10. And then I want you to draw an arrow up to chapter 9. Because John is putting these stories together masterfully. So the word Pharisees to the word thief, and then all of that back up to chapter 9. What's going on in chapter 9? We're going to come back to it later in our series in chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. And that was an amazing testimony to Jesus' power, that Jesus really is the Son of God and Israel's Messiah. But what typically happens in Jesus' earthly ministry is the religious leaders of his day misunderstand it. In fact, they get mad at uh, the man that Jesus heals, and they actually excommunicate him from the community. And then they get mad at Jesus as Jesus is teaching them and talking to them about uh, the, the ways that they're blinded to who he is. And the Pharisees approach Jesus. Here's what they say. It's sarcastically. Oh, oh, Jesus. Oh, so you think we're blind too, do you? Oh, you're so smart, Jesus. We're, we've, been, we've been leading these people for generations here. Are you some brilliant new guy and now we're the blind idiots? Oh, I see, I see. I had to imp I put the tone in there, but that's, what they're, that's, that's the sarcasm they're bringing. Now, verse 41, look at Jesus' response. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. If you were ignorant, 
but now you say you're the lead, you say you can see. You say that you are the ones in the know. You claim to be the leader of God's people, but you're actually leading them astray. And because of that, your guilt remains. Now, the very next words, and John is masterfully weaving this together, is John chapter 10. Hey, truly, truly, I tell you, you guys, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief. Not to be trusted. Not to be followed. They're a thief. He's going to continue. Look at verse, uh, verse 5. It says, my sheep, they won't follow you. Why? You're a stranger. You claim knowledge, but you're a stranger. In fact, my sheep will run from you. It's no wonder in verse 6 the Pharisees don't get it. They're like, come on now. This is ridiculous. Next to verses 1 and 2 in chapter 10, I want you to write Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. This is one of those things you got to listen to sermon notes to get the, the depth on. In Ezekiel 34, we have uh, God is condemning the leadership of Israel in the Old Testament. It's about 600 years before Jesus is saying these words. And as he condemns the, the leaders of Israel, he calls them blind shepherds. And then the God of the Old Testament says, I, I will come and shepherd my people. I will personally come and be their shepherd. And I will, I will set up as king of them my shepherd David. Jesus almost certainly has Ezekiel 34 in mind as he says these words to the leaders of Israel in his day. He continues, verse 7 and 8. He says, I am the gate for the sheep. All the ones who have come before me are thieves and robbers. Don't listen to them. Now, we got to do a little work here. When we see the Pharisees, here's what I think most of us think. They're the bad guys, right? Like, we know that. We look at them, we go, they're the bad guys. Why? Because they're the moral police. They're the teetotalers. They're the ones kind of looking to catch everybody in, in sin so they, can, so they can condemn them and judge them. And I'm sure everybody back in Israel's day thought the Pharisees were the worst. But that's, that's actually not the case. When we, when we put ourselves in the first century, the Pharisees had huge sway among much of the people in Israel. They offered a vision, a picture of the good life. Here's what it sounded like. We find ourselves languishing under the Roman Empire, but if we will be faithful to the Torah, and if we can get the people to be faithful to the Torah, then our God just might come back and rescue us. He'll kill the Romans. He'll establish our nation again. We'll finally be free. So let's obey the Torah. That was their message. But here's what they missed. In their hopes that their God would come and rescue them, they've missed their God who's come to rescue them right in their midst. They've missed him. They're offering a vision of God's kingdom without the right king. And they're leading God's people astray. They're thieves, Jesus says. And when he gets to verse 10, he wants us to be able to hear the difference between the shepherd and the thief. To be able to distinguish it in our ear, both in his day and in ours. Let, let me get, see if you can hear the difference. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders, these are religious and political leaders of Israel, they had a vision of the kingdom that went something like this. If we will do these things, then our God's going to come back and he's going to make our country all it was meant to be again. But not with this king. A vision of a great nation without Jesus, without the, the humble sacrifice of Jesus. It's the voice of the thief. Or they come and they say, this is a way to true justice in the world where things be put to right in our culture. But without the humble way of Jesus, it's the voice of a thief. I think James Smith is right. We're all oriented by and to a picture of what we think it looks like for us to live well. And this is a little bit of a stretch. Can I give you two? Two voices that call from our culture now that if we're not careful, they will lead us astray. Just two. There's many more. Let me just give you two that I see prevalent first one is this, especially since the 1950s on, we have been hearing a voice. It's 
a voice calling to us. It's the voice of the, the American dream. And that voice says, the more you have, the happier you will be. The nicer the house, the better the car, the lake house, the boat. Get the stuff and push, push all the discomfort away as you can. Maximize pleasure, maximize comfort, be good, and experience blessing. That's the good life. That's where true joy is found. Do you recognize the voice? When we look around our culture, what we've seen is sometimes the people with the most are empty inside. It's not the good life. And we've been fooled into thinking that the more stuff we can get, we've been, we've been lulled to sleep by this call, that the more stuff we can get, the happier our life will be. Yet we see families wrecked by divorce over, since the 1950s and social strife since the 1950s. It's a, it's, a, it's a voice calling to you and to me. Do we recognize it as the voice of a thief? That's not where true joy is found. By the way, I'm talking to myself as much as anybody in the room. A second voice that I hear. It's the secular, post-enlightenment vision of a utopian country, utopian world, where we have justice and beauty and tolerance and love. It's this vision that we've, been, that we've been on a quest to find where we rid ourselves of all those superstitions of religion and Christianity, and by reason alone, we'll arrive at a better world. Our technology will take us there. And yet here, this world is filled with contradictions, and ultimately, it doesn't work. Like, just, just one example. Have you noticed that oftentimes in this, this post-secular enlightenment quest that we're on, oftentimes, the community that formerly was marginalized and experienced no power, the second that they get the power, what do they do? They begin to marginalize those that formerly had the power because there's no anchor for it. There's no source of truth that, that writes us. It's a world saying, we matter and our lives matter and beauty matters and love is the great moral lot when all we are are just nothing but evolved primates. It's filled with contradictions. It's a voice though calling. Do we recognize the voice of the thief? The picture that Jesus offers the enemies of it in Jesus' day, and we gotta, we gotta hear the ones in our day, and lastly, our need for it. It goes without saying, but let me say it. Have you noticed? Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. I don't know if you noticed this. The Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, Jesus loves to do it, loves to talk about people, you and I, as sheep. I don't know if you know anything about sheep, but here's what, Everyone that knows things about sheep says they are the stupidest animals on the planet. Stupid, directionless. They will literally follow each other off cliffs if not led by a shepherd. They can't swim. They cannot defend themselves. Sheep have been known to literally have heart attacks at even the thought of a predator that turns out to be nothing at all. Heart attack, dead, dead sheep. They are defenseless, they are directionless, they are stupid, they are helpless. There may not be a stupider, more defenseless, helpless animal in the world. And the Bible over and over and over again says, sheep. Sheep. Keller again says this, talking about just for trying to get sheep to lie down and, and rest. He says, it is almost impossible for sheep to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free from all fear. Because of the social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down because they are free from, unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. Number three, if tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free of these pests can they relax. And number four, lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. I can't think of a better description of us. Can you? Because of our fear and anxiety and worry, we just have a hard time finding rest in our soul. Because of broken relationships, friction in relationships, they can oftentimes, they can take decades away from our life. 
tormented and bombarded by lies that we believe about ourselves, tormented and bombarded by addictions and, t- and temptations that just continue to fly around us. We keep going to those same places. And this deep hunger to know that we measure up, that we matter, that we're significant, that we're beautiful, that almost always feels like it's going unmet. We're just sheep. Jesus says it, and Isaiah had already said it hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. He says this, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And when a sheep gets lost, it can't find its way home. Each of us has turned to our own way. There is almost nothing more humbling in this world than being told, you're a sheep. But we're going to go here next week. Look at how our section, look at how Jesus, uh, look at what he says next. I've come that you might have the good life because I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is almost nothing more exalting, nothing that gives you more value than knowing that as a sheep, the good shepherd will lay down his life for you and for me. Or as Isaiah had said hundreds of years earlier, we're stupid sheep, turn to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the servant who will come, the iniquity of us all. You see, he become, Jesus will become the suffering servant who is led like a lamb to the slaughter so that we might experience joy that's impervious to circumstance. He experienced no protection but was beaten so that you and I might have abundance. He was given no provision so that we would be filled. So just three things as we close. Do you know the voice of the shepherd? Not just here, but do you follow him? Number two, do you recognize the voice of the thief? And number three, where do you go for your protection? Where do you go for provision? May we run to Jesus and experience the life and life to the full. Let's pray. Father, what a picture. And you sent your son into this world to accomplish it. And may we draw our security and our joy from this shepherd. When we find access through the gate, we find life to the full. We turn to sing to you now. Give you the glory and the praise. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing a couple verses of a familiar hymn that we know, Amazing Grace. With our voices, let's fill this room. Amazing Grace, how Was grace that taught. grace one more time just our voices May we find our joy in him.
this week. The good life in him and reject all the other voices. We won't follow them, strangers. But we follow the shepherd and find life. We would love to pray with you. If you've got questions about it, look what it looks like to follow Jesus, we'll, our team will be in the prayer room or right down here, Fellowship Fayetteville. Have a great week. We'll see you right here next week.